Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you live from Brighton! My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that babies who live in London are more rude than babies from the West Midlands. (laughs) So... (laughs) What do they... What do the London babies do? They come at you with a knife. They they, they don't say thank you and they don't say sorry. Um, And this this is a study uh, by Liverpool University which studied two and a half thousand babies. And it so, was, sorry, it must be yeah. babies of a certain age because I don't think any like one month old no, babies say no, that. That's true. You. It's all about the first words that they learn. And uh, it turns out the babies in London and Wales, weirdly, are least likely to include the word thank you among their first words. And normally oh, babies okay. are quite polite, as in the word sorry crops up quite a lot. Well, they're always fucking up. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> if I shat myself seven times a day, I'd apologize all the time as well. <laughs> Hang on. They've not shat themselves. They haven't gone, oh, God, I am so sorry. They've just gone to the toilet. That's what shitting yourself is? No, that sounds like... If I I went to the toilet seven times a day, I wouldn't complain. No, when it's in your pants, it's shitting yourself. (laughs) My son doesn't say... And he's a Londoner, I guess. Uh, Yeah. He's, what does he say? He says no, like a lot. Wow. Yeah, you'll be yeah. like, can I have a hug? No. It's, re- <laughs> it's really cutting. So actually, no is one of the more common first words of babies. And there are quite a few babies, a high percentage, who have no as their first word, say nothing else for the first three months. <gasps> Pretty much. They wow. just say no, 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 no. Like Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Two Unlimited. They're just like, no, no, no. Wow. Yeah, That's he so just cool. says no. He says mummy, daddy, and... Guys, I've shat myself, so... <laughs> Do we know why this is the case? Is there any... Are they rude? And they're not rude in other ways. They just don't like to say please and thank you. Yeah, it's, they're not... Uh, I don't think they're noticeably impolite in other ways. It's just, yeah. I don't know what the reason behind it is, actually. Presumably their parents aren't teaching it to them, or is it quite random what baby... I don't think baby... I don't say. think your first word is just a random word. <laughs> It's got, to dep- it's got to be a word you've heard before. Uh, I mean, the, um, they, so I would have assumed the baby's first word is something the parents are attempting to teach them. Exactly. Or is it just something that the baby picks up it's from what, what they, they hear pick around up. them? So it means that babies in London are not hearing those words as, as regularly. I think that was the suggestion anyway. Uh, other common first words, or early words at least, include carrot, cake, doggy, quack, banana, and bird poo. <laughs> wow. Really? Who's, who's saying that a lot to their children? Yeah. Is, that, yeah. is that London specific? Uh, no, that was in this study. It was all regular things. And another thing is that um, this is in all regions, actually. Um, one of the names that children are most likely to learn after mummy and daddy is Pepper. Uh, flat out, that's my son learned that before he said mummy and daddy. I'm, wow. not, I'm not lying. Pepper is... is Love Pepper. He loves Pepper. The more, yeah, Pepper is his hero. Turmeric is the other one he says a lot, isn't it? <laughs> That's a London baby, all right, isn't it? 
<laughs> they're, they're surprisingly clever babies, aren't they? They um, they can count from extraordinarily young. So they can count at five months old to an extent, which I find incredible because if you look at a five-month-old, they can barely move their head. And, you know, they're tiny, but there was this study done which basically showed five months old this screen on a stage. There's a big screen on a stage. And then they took out a Mickey Mouse doll and they showed it to the kid and then they put it behind the screen. And they took out a second Mickey Mouse doll, put that behind the screen. And then they lifted the screen up. And if there were two Mickey Mouse dolls there, the kid was like, fine, looked away quite quickly. If there were three Mickey Mouse dolls there, then the kid would stare at it for ages, which is the only way that we know if a baby is confused or surprised or anything as they just stare for a long time because it's so confused because it knows it's counted two and you've revealed three. On the, on the thing about them being surprised and looking at things, so this is why Peekaboo is such a great game for babies and for all of us, actually. Um, <laughs> no, it's, um, so that basically they are surprised when, when things... They like sort of testing... There's a theory of object permanence, which is that, you know, things are still there even when you can't see them. So even if you're hiding, when you appear again, it's, it's sort of surprise and confirmation at the same time that, you, that you're correct. So babies laugh... Uh, more in normal peekaboo than they do in trial versions of peekaboo where the adult hides and then they reappear as a different person. That's not funny to a baby. <laughs> <laughs> they like peekaboo because it's predictable. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay, because they know that it's wrong if they've, they're a different person. Exactly. So they're like sort of, yes, yeah, sort of standard stuff. I also did not know that... Um, so they'd love the Big Bang Theory, for example, because it's very... <laughs> Basic, obvious stuff. <laughs> the so, TV show? The t- or the actual theory? <laughs> <laughs> Very obvious. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but P- I did not... Did you know that peekaboo is a style of boxing? Is it? It's a no. style of boxing where you put your hands in front of your face. Okay. And you then do, do you whip your hands away and give the man a shot at your no. nose? No, you do it, and then you whip your hands out of the way, and it's Mike Tyson there instead. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that you cover your eyes, because obviously that's a very bad boxing no. technique. <laughs> They're quite into punching, actually, babies, aren't they? Or they can, they can get quite aggressive. Uh, so this was a stu- another study that was done about how our adult behaviour can impact very young children's behaviour. And they did this experiment with really young kids, with like young toddlers. And what they did was they had some kids watch an adult beat up a punching bag clown, you know, like a big toy clown. So I would have loved to have been the adult in this experiment. So the adult got to beat the crap out of this clown and then some other babies... You're not allowed back in McDonald's, are you? (laughs) 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 Uh, So there was another clown which didn't get beaten up where the adults just treated it nicely and there was another control group that did nothing. And the kids who'd seen an adult beating up the clown, not only did they then, when they were unleashed on the clown, beat it to shreds, like really attacked it, but they improvised new weapons out of whatever they could see. (laughs) To really try and make... So there was, like, a dark gun was left in the room and there's some quite dramatic footage. <laughs> of... That's not improvising a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Picking up a dark gun. Yeah, they didn't build the dark gun out of a mop and <laughs> an orange. Um, no, there's a... <laughs> There was, maybe they maybe they did. Uh, there was a dark gun in the corner of the room. You can watch this on YouTube. There's like a two-year-old kid who goes up to the clown and holds a dark gun to its head and starts whispering scary stuff in its ear. <laughs> That's amazing. The guy is a psycho. And then lots of people said, but it's okay, it's a punching bag clown, it's what they're for. And so they repeated the experiment, but using a real person dressed as a clown, and they also beat the crap out of him. Really? Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh my god, that's amazing! Wow. Um, wow. Actually, on um, aggressiveness in children, I don't have kids, so I don't know if this is common. But I was surprised to read that they often bang their head against the bed or the crib or the wall, and they'll do this at around six months of age. Quite a lot of children will just start head banging things. And apparently, the reason they do it, it can last up to 15 minutes, and the reason they do it is it gives them a surge of adrenaline. Because, like, if you get hurt, for instance, you get yeah. some adrenaline, and then that helps them to sleep afterwards because they get the surge of adrenaline, and then it what? gives them a oh, kind of a what? downer. Apparently, this That's is true. so cool. They're like this. And from the reaction, I think it's not a common thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen my son do that. I would... But apparently, like, because it is quite relatively, or, you know, it does happen, but yeah. whenever any parent sees it, they're like, holy fuck. Right. <laughs> There's a thing that kids have, I haven't got any research on this, I just remember learning this at the time when I had my son, um, that kids at the beginning, they have no separation between what's, like, every, their vision is quite solid, so 3D objects are not so great. But one of the things is perception of size is a thing that they don't fully get. And then they hit a certain age where suddenly they realize that they're tiny and everyone else is massive. <laughs> and it freaks them out. They're suddenly surrounded by giants and it's a really traumatizing moment for kids. Wow. Um, yeah, so you can really take advantage of that moment <laughs> when you... <laughs> <laughs> well, there is this weird thing that, they, that we think that they see everything upside down at first. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's this thing where you see things upside down because uh, that's the way the light hits your retina, it hits it in the wrong, hits it upside down, and then your brain reverses the image and you, yep. see it, you see a correct image. But actually, the light enters your eyes and shows you an upside down image. So we think that before babies work out how to flip the images, because they're idiots, they... <laughs> they can't see the right way up for the first week of their life. So everything is upside down for them. That's crazy. Yeah, that's so weird. weird. <laughs> and also they, they can do mirror writing, which I only learned this recently. And to any parent, I think this is quite standard. I learned it from a parent who was like, oh yeah, she's at the stage where she's doing mirror writing. She was Australian. Um, and <laughs> but to her, everything did look upside down because she was Australian. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Um, but yeah, a lot of kids at toddler age, the natural way they write is proper mirror writing like Leonardo da Vinci did that we can't possibly do naturally as humans. And then they just grow out of doing it. Have you met kids that do this? No, yeah. no, yeah, never. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. That's crazy. Um, we're going to have to move on shortly to our next fact. Oh. Um, I just, uh, one small interesting thing just on the idea of rudeness in babies. Um, in Thailand, uh, because of superstitions, there's a common thing that's done, which is you never say that a newborn baby is beautiful. You always call it ugly. So for the first, it's the idea that by calling them ugly, um, ghosts would be scared away and so on. And yeah, so for the first few weeks of a baby's life, they're just being called but ugly. In the Philippines, is that... No, that was in Thailand. In Thailand. I, th I don't know if it happened in Hong Kong, because I used to get called... Definitely happened in Bolton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was a genuinely ugly baby, and my, uh, one of my best friends, her mum, came to see me, first person to see me after I was born, and she tells me this story now. She said, I just couldn't bring myself to even find the words to say that you were in any way beautiful, or you were just, <laughs> you were just so ugly. And the, the first thing that was said about me was she looked at me and went, oh, how interesting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And then you work for the company quite interesting. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah, that's how it all began. In a first. Just um, on, another oh, thing on rude, rudeness yeah. and how rudeness can affect us. So there's lots of studies that have done that have shown that it's extremely infectious in a way that we can totally understand. Because what it does is if someone's rude to you, it takes a lot of mental energy to respond to that. It's quite draining working out your impulse control and not punching them in the face. And then you become weaker. Your impulses come weaker. So therefore, you're then rude to the next person. And it's to the extent that... Um, it, and it really damages our mental faculties uh, in various other ways 
other way. So it also makes us stupider. So as soon as someone's rude to you, it makes you stupid to the extent that if you even read words that sound like they're rude, so there was a study where people were asked to read the words interrupt, obnoxious, and bother. Don't know how rude that is. Um, but after that, they f- performed five times worse on a mental task. So if you were to read, for instance, the Daily Mail... <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. watch a Winnie the Pooh episode... Um, <laughs> is that rude? Oh, bother. <laughs> okay, we need to move on to our second fact of the show. And that is my fact. My fact this week is in 17th century Japan, the super rich would protect their homes from burglars by installing musical floorboards. So, like the piano in Big. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, this is not quite that. It's, um, these were called nightingale floors, and the idea was that they worked out uh, that in Japan, if you had a palace and you were worried about, let's say, you're the head of the palace being murdered by ninjas or anyone good at creeping in, what you would do is you would have creaky floorboards, and the creaky floorboards would alert everyone to, uh, to the fact that someone was there. Now, some people just have creaky floorboards, but these were specifically designed and they were very expensive to install. <laughs> and what it was, was underneath the floorboard, there was a nail that went along a bracket and it produced a frequency sound that sounded a lot like a nightingale singing a song. The bird, um, the nightingale bird. <laughs> you can see clips on YouTube. As opposed to the Victorian <laughs> uh, nurse. <laughs> <laughs> Like, they were all confused. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad we clarified. Good. Yeah, so it was really cool. But and yeah. the, my favorite thing about this whole fact is, obviously, there are people patrolling the grounds of the, of the palace. So what do they do? Because they need to walk over these floorboards. So what they ended up doing was agreeing on a system of rhythm that would effectively be playing a song as you walked. And if they heard the rhythm, they'd be like, oh, it's Mike, you know, as opposed to... <laughs> Oh, that's clever. That's very yeah. clever. They have in Japan quite exciting sort of burglar defenders even today. Really? They have in shops, modern day shops in Japan often have this bright orange sphere that's next to the till if you're buying something. And what it actually is, is it's a paintball. And they're trained as shopkeepers in Japan to throw this paintball at someone if they try to rob the shop. And the idea is that uh, it will leave this mark on them and then they'll be identifiable. So just look for the guy covered in orange paint. And they probably get uh, trained in it. They get told to throw it actually at the person's feet because then it will splash up onto them and they're more likely to get covered in paint and then if you if you miss the if you miss the robber then you have to run out to their getaway car and throw the anti-crime ball at the car at the car instead that is pretty cool and the police it? can find it yeah i was looking at kind of weird home innovations that have been done because this is a cool floor have you guys heard about the self-sleucing house the, the, what, the self-sleucing, self-sleucing house. house. Sleuthing. 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 The self-sleuthing house would be a house that solved the crime after <laughs> yeah. it had been burgled. It would Sounds be a great. Sherlock home. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, yeah. This was... No, sleucing. I don't want my house sluice. Sluice. It's self Are you going to explain what a sluice is? Yeah, what could you, talk, is could you tell us what it is? Sluice, it sluices itself. So it's, this was... There was only, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, it, okay, so it washes, rinses, and dries itself, right? Okay. So this was, this was invented in 1980 by a woman from Oregon called Frances Gabe, and it, it was basically... The whole house was a massive dishwasher, 
And so <laughs> she, and there was only one of these ever built, amazingly. Uh, and she lived in it. It was the prototype. And it had a, a, she was a genuine inventor and a true eccentric because there was a sprinkler in every room. So she would go around with an umbrella and she'd press a button in each room and it just soaked the whole room with sudsy water. And then she pressed another button, and then a second spray would, would blast it with warm water. So all the water runs off uh, in the floor, mm-hmm. um, you know, through drains. And then uh, jets of warm water uh, dry the house. Warm air. Warm, warm air. Water, warm air. So what did I say? Warm air will dry the house, not warm, warm air. Water. So jets of warm air dry the house. <laughs> uh, and then it, but the, the water that runs off through the drains uh, goes through the doghouse and the dog gets washed too. <laughs> no. Uh, and where do you put the tablet? <laughs> <laughs> but then, well, like even if, like things like electronic tablets, for instance, anything electronic would just get... That's true. She, her, a lot of her life was spent devoted to... Buying new products. <laughs> <laughs> like, devoting ways to not wash the bed or the books as well so she had to invent waterproof jackets for books and she had to invent a waterproof cover for the bed and the, it was more bother than it was worth frankly mm. but it did happen it was real that's really cool oh. um did you know on floors they used to cover floors with herbs this is just another thing about you know when you watch period dramas that they need to start getting right that the, the first use for mint really in this country in medieval times was you sprinkled it on the floor because this is when people had sort of stopped washing a bit late medieval Tudor times and everything stank and so what you had was you had lots of mint and herbs that you strewed over floors that's really cool and like if, shake and vac are they those crisps where you shake the salt in <laughs> no admittedly that is not a 2019 reference shake and vac <laughs> Is this as old as these Renaissance floors? (laughs) It was what you used to do is when you hoovered. This was in probably the 70s. So Mm. even before I was born, but you would like put this weird, like almost like um, washing tablet smell stuff on your carpet and then you would Mm. hoover over it and it would make it smell like the 70s. Oh, okay, yeah. Like that. Like the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The royal family had a herb strewer. It was one of the royal court. It was introduced by Charles II in 1660 and lasted for a couple of hundred years. One, you know, you had the groom of the stool, you had your lady in waiting, you had your herb strewer, and they had to strew herbs all over the floor. Right. That's amazing. Um, I have a thing on um, sort of alternative alarm systems to what would be, you know, seen as an average one to use. Uh, there's, this is a very weird one. Um, there was in um, Marbella, there was a lady who was um, in her house and she got... Uh, robbers came in, tied her up, and she was on the bed, and they were stealing all the stuff. And then what happened was, is, and this is the story that they tell, they suddenly started noticing that the woman on the bed was in a lot of family photos surrounding the bed and bits of the house with the actor Dolph Lundgren, um, who, is, who is in Rocky IV. He's the big Russian dude. Quickly realizing that that was the husband of the woman that they had on the bed, and thought, "We got to get the hell out of here right now," and they bolted for that reason. That is um, a really good idea, isn't it? If I live on my own, then I get a load of photos with me and Mike Tyson, <laughs> and just pretend that we're a couple, and then <laughs> could happen. <laughs> and then when the um, burglars come, then they'll run away. Yeah. yeah, but when he gets wind of that, I think you are in serious trouble. <laughs> And we're going to have to move on to our next fact very shortly. I've got one thing about burglars. Uh, was it's that just to sort of I like I like stories of burglars being caught. Um, so there was in 2015 a burglar was taunting police because they they'd launched an appeal to try and trace him on Facebook, and he was so cocky that uh, he wrote on Facebook in answer to the police comment, "Ha ha, catch me if you can. You won't see me slipping." 
And then a news agency later spoke to him and he said, I've been walking around near home, so they're not trying too hard. And he was arrested <laughs> later that day. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, just on the Facebook thing, a very similar thing. There was a guy um, who had his house burgled. He got back and it was nothing he can do. So he went on his computer and it turned out that while the burglar was there, he had logged into his own Facebook account <laughs> and failed to log back out. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, between 2013 and 2016, the police in East Kilbride, Devon, Warwickshire, Camden and Bristol all issued warnings about secret signs that burglars were using. And so what they would do is they would put little signs on the floor next to some houses and they might be telling people that this has already been burgled or that a medium-sized <laughs> dog lived here. Is or... married to Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> 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 um, some, one of them meant supposedly occupants are nervous and afraid. Okay, uh, But then in 2016, West Mercia Police pointed out that all these secret signs, so-called, were actually made by utility companies. And the sign that they said meant nothing worth stealing actually meant new lampposts to go here. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we need to move on to fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that, according to its ingredients list, pepperami contains 108% pork. (laughs) That actually means pepperami is less good at math than a five-month-old child. (laughs) Well, How is it I, possible? I saw this in an old copy of New Scientist, and apparently, actually, it is true. So this is more of a recipe than an ingredients list. And basically, if you're making salami or some kind of cured meat like that, then a lot of it is through desiccation is how it cures. So you would have a load of pork and then you would dry it out so it would lose a load of the water. So it is possible to use 108 kilograms of pork to make 100 kilograms of pepperami. So it is true. A sausage can lose up to 50% of its weight during the curing process. Mm. Um, Pepperami are very crafty with their advertising campaign. So in 2017, they launched a mass porking campaign. It's weird, because to me that sounds like an enormous PR error. (laughs) It was a different time, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, they were trying to, supposedly doing it to highlight the growing pothole problem in London. And they cordoned off 100 potholes and filled them with pepperamis. Great. It yeah. is as tough as tarmac, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> weird. They do, they've got a strong history in advertising. So I hadn't realised that the pepperami man, like the living creature that is the pepperami guy, was voiced by Adrian Ebenson. He was this, you know, big epitome of manhood, wasn't he? And they've had to review him now. So he used to be this really masculine, macho bloke. Oh, not the pepperami guy as well. I'm so sorry. He's not been U-treed, has he? (laughs) No, God, I don't want to spread that rumour about the pepperami guy. No. No, it's uh, it's pepperami too, actually. He's, he has been modernised because of us what, hipsters. What has he known a tuxedo? A He's nasty, desiccated pork th- man. They're just making him have less innuendo and macho behaviour mm. to cater to a younger generation less tolerant of 90s culture. Um, dried meat? Um... <laughs> <laughs> so dried meat is pretty much the old, one of the oldest meals we know about existing. So Ertzi the Iceman, a uh, long-standing friend of the podcast, uh, <laughs> and uh, f- dead mummy found in the Alps, uh, one of his last meals was goat jerky. Oh. And so it's amazing how they found it out. So they, you know, they found him frozen up in the Alps, per- you know, very well preserved, not perfectly preserved. Uh, he's a mummy. But... Um, 
they, they thought, well, we could find out what he was eating. And his stomach wasn't where it should have been. So his stomach was pushed way up under his ribs because it had moved a bit in the 5,000 years since he died. Um, so they had to defrost him for a bit because he's normally fr- he's kept on ice to keep him that way. And then they had to use an endoscope to pull out these blobs from his stomach and intestines. And they had to analyze that and found out that it was dried strips of goat meat. And that was one of his last meals. Wow. Yeah. amazing. And it's so well preserved. You could probably re-eat that, couldn't you? <laughs> It's you? jerky. You jerky lasts forever. Yeah. It's amazing. On, uh, no, okay, it's just me. <laughs> so it's amazing your funding bids keep being turned down, isn't it, Anna? Reason for wanting to study Iceman. Jerky sounds nice. <laughs> um, just on, this is kind of salami, pepperami is like salami. Uh, oh, yeah. And did you know that salami brought down the people responsible for the biggest diamond heist of all time? Oh. Uh, they were foiled by a piece of salami. This is in 2003. And basically it was this group of robbers who broke into the vaults two floors beneath the Antwerp Diamond Centre and they stole $100 million worth of like diamonds and jewellery and all of that. It's the biggest heist ever. And uh, they didn't know how to get them, whatever. But in the area, there happened to be a guy living there who always had people dumping rubbish on his land and he used to get really angry about it and constantly calling the police and whinging about it. So he called the police the next day after this big diamond heist and said, oh, I'm really annoyed. I've got rubbish on my land again. Uh, there's all this, well, there's some salami for a start. Someone's chucked salami on my land. And there's also some diamond center envelopes, which could someone take away? And the police went, some what? Uh, okay. And it turned out the heist guys had gone, they'd robbed all this stuff. And then they'd eaten some salami sandwiches earlier that they hadn't finished. And then they just tossed them in the ground. And they found these sandwiches and they did the DNA tests and they traced it back wow. to the guy who'd eaten them. Wow. And then they, so they found the guy who'd eaten <laughs> so the salami. They arrested the pig. It's so unfair. <laughs> What would have been missing from his side? <laughs> Not only that, they found the main guy who'd done it, who was this guy called Notar Bartolo, but then they went to his house and they found the salami receipt from the butchers where he'd got it. So then they went to the butchers and they could tell by the receipt what time it had been bought. They checked the CCTV and they also then found the guy who'd bought it. So there you go, two wow. birds, one salami. <laughs> That's so cool. Amazing. Wow. Um, just on pigs, you know that some people have the ability to, if, they're, if you give them a plate of pork and they start eating it, tell you the gender of the animal. Oh, come on. Yeah. What? It's a genuine thing. It's all to do with a um, receptor which is called androstostone, and, and that's not how you say it. Um, <laughs> so now that we've got that out of the way, let's do the right version. <laughs> androstenone, it's a steroid similar to testosterone and it's found in male pigs and there are certain people who are able to detect that way more than other people. Now, most meats, weirdly, if a pig is castrated, then that thing, that androstenone, uh, gets, <laughs> gets knocked down and so you can't usually tell. However, the, the European Union are going to say that castration is inhumane. So a lot more people who have this will be able, as they eat, to go, I'm, I'm so eating a man. is it a nice taste? No, it's this. a horrible taste. So it, these people are just not going to be able to eat meat anymore. Exactly. Right? They're tasting... Well, no, they'll have to ask for specifically female pigs to eat. You can't um, do that in a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. You can't, like, say, take these sausages back and bring me a male one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. It's a genuine thing. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it, and it tastes horrible, so they, that's why they do get rid of it as well. That's amazing. Do you know what the longest salami ever was? Uh, no. Well, it was a salami, but do you know how long it was? Have a bash. Hmm. Five... 
5,000 5, 5, meters. 5,000 5, meters? 5,000 meters! <laughs> there isn't room for that anywhere. No one's got five kilometers of space to put a salami in. Yeah, but for a picnic, you could have it for a picnic, yeah. couldn't you? Well, if you wind it round. No, if you had a very, very long picnic in a very Those big open spaces. Yeah. Well, if, you had a, if you were having it <laughs> on a runway at an airport, yeah. <laughs> you could take the salami exactly. there. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, I mean, it's... It's still long. It's not that long, but it's 1,152 metres and 16 centimetres. That's a long bit of meat, See, isn't it? that's an extremely long salami. Because Dan guessed 5,000 metres, we're all thinking, oh, it's not 10 miles, <laughs> yeah. is it? It was made by a Belgian company called Cox Fresh. <laughs> that was founded by a Belgian man uh, in 1935 called Charles de Kock. Mm. And in 2016, they renamed Cox Fresh Charles, <laughs> which I think is sensible. Very wise. Um, well, do we know what happened to the salami that they made? Um, no, I don't. I imagine they sliced it up and then ate it. <laughs> story checks out. <laughs> um, you said that like the end of a bedtime story. <laughs> and they all ate it up. Okay, son, good night. <laughs> what do you mean, no? <laughs> Stop banging your head on that thing. <laughs> Here, have a nice clown to kill. <laughs> um, there was a... This is just another one that you'll like, James, because it's very immature facts. Um, in Taipei, there was... It, Taipei was named the world design capital in 2016, and to celebrate, they had literally a massive sausage party. It was at the Taiwan Design Centre, and uh, they made it all completely sausage-themed, so it featured a smoky-scented sausage mist that descends upon visitors as they enter. <laughs> that sounds quite nice, doesn't it, really? I'm so glad we picked Brighton, home of vegetarianism, to bring these facts. They had a sausage festoon chandelier, very classy, um, and then some sausage carnival games, and the whole sausage fest was put together by a designer called Alice Wang. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to move on. Should we go for it? Yeah. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that baby songbirds have inbuilt nappies. This is great. They don't need pampers. They've already got them within themselves, literally. They're called fecal sacs, and they are for particularly common... It's not quite as good branding as pampers, is it? <laughs> <laughs> They need to work on their PR strategies. Uh, it's most common in passerine birds, which are basically songbirds, so birds like robins and bluebirds. And it's, basically, it's only for nestling, so it's only when they're babies and they're in the nest. And you can't leave your poo just all over the nest because that's very unhygienic. And so what the little nestlings do when they need to go to the loo is they turn their rear end towards their parent, they point their ass at their parent, and they eject this white bag of poo that's encased in a mucous membrane. And they eject it at the parent which flies away and disposes of it. It's incredible. Yeah. It's really cool. They sometimes eat it. They sometimes eat it as well, yeah. For a really cool reason, right? It's, it's, <laughs> well, no, because sometimes the baby has not digested everything inside it. So what you are effectively getting is like a packaged dim sum of just... <laughs> it's just like a capsule and you take it in and so the birds get a lot of nutrients from it because yeah it's not yeah. been fully digested yeah, yeah. Um, wow. and also the other advantage is if you swallow it or indeed if you take it away it means that no predators will, will find it because it smells and it would, it would attract predators otherwise yeah allegedly it comes with a handle no it doesn't it does it comes with a little handle 
What? Well, it's amazing. Yeah. Like and a briefcase. <laughs> yeah. Or a plastic bag or yeah. anything what with a handle, really, is what yeah. it is. <laughs> and do they, can they slot their beak through the handle? It doesn't feel like it's going to be that big. Grab, I think they grab the, the handle with the beak and then they take it away. Amazing. Although they have to do a lot of it because a, every baby bird produces one fecal sac every hour throughout the day. So a lot of the parents' job is just distributing this stuff all around, away from the nest, to, you know, trick predators, or to well, avoid predators. That's the other reason for eating it, is so that they don't have to leave. Because they're lazy. <laughs> no, 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 as in, as in you're immediately disposing of the evidence that would yeah. draw predators. So quickly eat the poo of your child, and then that's... Oh, there's no kids here. You know, you can't... You know you, what? Even when surrounded by muggers, I would not... <laughs> Most this. muggers don't track their victims <laughs> by sniffing out their baby's feces. Well, yeah, so. we, we've never heard a police give it out to going, well, fortunately, the potential victim ate his own shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, bluebirds have been seen festooning fence posts and utility poles with these fecal sacs. Wow. Like cool. a dog walker might do with a dog poo oh, bag. Oh, cool. And no wh- one's why sure quite why they do that. No, we don't know. It, it could be to say that this is my territory, for instance. Or it could be like they're claiming they were going to walk back that way and put it in a bin. <laughs> <laughs> and then they forgot. Yeah. I think blackbirds do this as well. And I've found that there's a blackbird in Tibet. It's the Tibetan blackbird. Um, and that... <laughs> so it's, it's, like a, a species. It's a species yeah, yeah. called the Tibetan blackbird. But its Latin <laughs> name is Turdus maximus. Uh. Well, they're turdus, turdus, crows, aren't they? Or Thru- the, I think that's the, the thrushes. Thrushes is turdus, turdus. Yeah. 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 Very turdy. Um, the great hornbill is another bird that does exciting stuff with poo. Uh, so this is... They look very cool. They've got big bills. Uh, they hang around in like, India, Southeast Asia, that part of the world. And they do a cool thing when they're rearing their chicks, which is that they build themselves a little prison. The mother basically goes into this big hollow in a large, in a big fat tree trunk. So it builds a big hollow and then she seals up the whole opening with her own feces. So she makes plaster out of her feces. She closes them all in so they're completely trapped and she creates this tiny little slit in the feces and that is where her mate, the father, will come and deliver food to all of them. So they have to sit inside this prison for ages. The mate delivers food through this little letterbox and it's also where she has to avoid the feces of her chick. So every time one of the chicks poo, then they have to squash it out this letterbox. And then you're also receiving food through the same entrance, which isn't very hygienic at all. People have been doing that in my letterbox as well. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sadly, I don't know if they migrate all the way to North London, so it could be another explanation. (laughs) I was looking at a bird that benefits from other animals' poo. Um, So there's a vulture in Egypt called the Egyptian vulture. Amazing. (laughs) Where do they get these names? (laughs) And so what it does is it goes to cow dung and it finds the yellow bits of cow dung and it starts eating it and sort of scrubbing its face inside. And the reason for that is it's helping its beak to go to the brightest yellow that it can go. So it's effectively a sort of makeup that it puts onto itself but sort of, sort of actually enhances the yellowness anyway of their beak, like an exfoliating kind of thing. And is wow. that to attract mates? Um, didn't read that far in the article, but I imagine... Yeah, we both did read the article. Then. <laughs> Great. So it's the carotenoids inside the, um, inside the poo, which makes them go more orange, yeah. and it is to attract mates. Mm, yeah. Sexy. Everyone um, loves a sexy orange beak. Did you know that you drink some dinosaur urine every day? 
Yeah, it goes with my 70,000-year-old beef jerky. <laughs> Um, this is I, uh, this is I think being calculated that dinosaurs were around for 186 million years. Basically, they had time to drink so much that almost all almost every single molecule of water on the planet has at some point been through a dinosaur's kidney. So cool. So that's a cool it? thing you can think next time you're having a, a glass of water. <laughs> we should talk. I think because we're talking about bird poo, it feels like we should talk about guano. Okay. The mm. most, yeah, are we agreed? Great. Uh, guano is basically has held up the Peruvian economy for about 200 years. So Wait, when you say held up, you mean it supported it rather than delayed it? It supported it, yeah. yes. So this is bird poo, and it is specifically, and bird poo is an extremely useful fertilizer. You probably know you spread it on your fields. Um, so it's uh, exported worldwide, and a huge percentage comes from Peru, and that is because it has booby pelicans and guane cormorants who produce the best guano and it's because they have 80% of the world's anchovy and this feeds them up. And basically there are a few little islands that are just covered in it that get harvested for their poo the whole time. So there's this one tiny island, Guanape Sur, where there are only two guards allowed to live on it. One of them has been living on it for 13 years. He's the only person allowed. And he's there to fight off anyone who wants to steal the bird poo. And then uh-huh. I think it's the case that it's only like every 10 years that suddenly hundreds of harvesters are allowed to come and scrape it off the rocks and sell it. Then they have to go away and wait for it to regrow. There, there are birds living there as well, as in they're constantly depositing yeah, Constantly it. leaving it there, yeah. Right. yeah. Wow. They're not just shipping it in. These islands are incredible. Some of them are covered like, 200 feet deep in poo. Whoa! And the guy is actually living on the island. Is yeah, like... lives there the whole time. Wow. He does say he misses his family. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so America passed a law in the, I think, the late 19th century, which legally s- allowed it to seize any island which had guano on it. Because it was yeah. so important for And when you say legally, it was according to American rules. Wasn't yes, it? Isn't it? it was, yeah. Um, but in, in 15 years, Britain imported 2 million tonnes of guano. Yeah. with just whole thousands of ships just full of guano yeah. uh, bringing, you know, and fertiliser yields rocketed. Yeah. yeah. It was mo- most of their income, Peru's income, for about 40 years was that. Um, and there was a guy, uh, we, there's a guy we mentioned sometimes called William Buckland, who was a naturalist, and he was around at the beginning of the 19th century, and he once pranked his Oxford college using guano. So it was in about 1804, he got hold of some of this, which was pretty new then, and he spread it on the grass in the main... Um, uh, lawn of his college uh, by night he spelled out five letters and that grass grew incredibly powerfully go on which what? letters do you think he spelled out was, was uh, it just guano guano, guano yes right. yes it was it's, I not, regret, the, it's I not the regret. best reveal I've ever uh, heard yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, I'm kicking myself for building it up to be a big <laughs> you know yeah but then it grew incredibly strongly up saying guano and it's sort of super grass as it were Really? Yeah. Very cool. And that's where the band got the name, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> you know, that in, um, there's a theory that uh, in, in Antarctica that in order for penguins, when they're about to go into breeding season, the way they need ice to be melted in order for them to have a nice patch, they all get together and they poo the ice away. <gasps> yeah. So they all stand and huddle and they all go for it. And then the heat... The heat of the no. poo melts the ice, and then, yeah, that's Did you say this is a theory, or...? Yes, it's no, a... Th- no, no, they definitely do it. The thing is that we don't think they do it intentionally. Exactly. So it's a theory that they're doing it intentionally. That right. is like the scene in Alien Resurrection, where, and I'm sorry to go all film nerdy here, but the, the aliens all kill one of the other aliens because they've all got acid for blood. So to make their escape from the lab they're in, they deliberately kill one, and then it burns through the floor 
of the room that they're in. Uh, and that's what the penguins are doing. Yeah. Like that. Well, yeah. It's kind of what they're yeah. doing. It's almost yeah. exactly the same as what it's the penguins not, are. It's I don't think they're using their bodily fluids to get through a floor surface. But that film's not going to do nearly as well if they're just shitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Alien squatting over <laughs> I found another, um, an, an, there's a beetle which is called the three-lined potato beetle and in order to protect Where's it... Where's it from? from <laughs> um, it's from... Uh... <laughs> you don't know, do you? <laughs> yeah. So it's a beetle. Um, <laughs> and no one knows where it's from, but uh-huh. it's... Um, and uh, so what it does is it has a big problem with uh, predators, obviously, like all beetles. It's uh, constantly um, predated on. And it has... <laughs> Professor, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> but no, please you know, don't slow down. <laughs> you know that theory we mentioned earlier, that the more you, people are rude to you, the stupider you get? Yeah. You're saying we've been shooting ourselves in the foot, really, haven't we, over the years? Five years, five years in, there's almost nothing left. <laughs> you brought this on yourselves. Um, yeah, so it basically, in order to protect itself, it eats toxins, and then the toxins are pooed out, and then it grabs the poo, and it smothers its back in the poo. So it means that no animal would ever eat it because they would die from the poison of it. Yeah. Um, and, but then, weirdly, uh. there's a symbiotic relationship with an ant that eats that, but then protects the beetle as a trade-off. So, oh. Oh, yeah. so no one's going to eat it, but it's never going to get a shag, is it? Really? <laughs> That's true. Just, it's not a way to attract people, no. smearing poo on yourself. <laughs> that, it's, it's not a controversial statement. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Um, we, we need to wrap up, guys, very Can shortly. I just give, uh, just because this is a bit about nappies, bird nappies, just a thing I learned about human nappies. So people toilet train their kids differently all around the world. And I was reading about a few of the different countries, the ways they do it. So in 2012, a study looked at Vietnam and found that all the mothers they looked at there trained their kids to uh, wee on command when they whistled. They <laughs> made it so that they looked for the that signs. That must have been very awkward at a football match. <laughs> <laughs> It was very clever. So the mothers, basically, when they saw their baby look like it was going to wee or poo, then they'd take it to the toilet, hold it over the toilet or the potty, and they'd whistle while they pooed. And it's a bit of a Pavlovian thing wow. where the babies were eventually trained to wee only or poo only when their mothers whistled. And so they could just schedule their poos in. It's <laughs> terrifying power that your mother will hold over you, though, in later yeah. life. <laughs> if you... <laughs> If you, bring, oh. if you bring someone home that your mum doesn't like, she can just <laughs> embarrass you royally in front of yeah. them. Mind you, as a woman in the hashtag Me Too era, what a great way to deter wolf whistlers. If oh, you... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to do that for long. <laughs> uh, okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, I can be found on my Twitter account, uh, which is at Schreiberland. Andy is at, on... At Andrew Hunter M. And James. At James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, nosuchthingasafish.com. We have everything up there from our previous episodes to upcoming tour dates. That is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much. We'll see you again, Bryden. Good night! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.